0: Today is July 6, 2011, and my guest is Abhijit Banerjee, the Ford Foundation International Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's a founder of J-PAL, the Abdul Latif Shamil Poverty Action Lab, and he is a member of the Consortium on Financial Systems and Poverty at the University of Chicago. His latest book, co-authored with Esther Duflo, is Poor Economics. Abhijit, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. You're critical of what might be called two extreme views of development and aid. One is associated with Jeffrey Sachs, who argues for large top-down approaches from the outside, and one associated with William Easterly, who argues that most aid from the outside is wasted and that only a bottom-up internal approach will work. What do you see as being incorrect with these two views?
1: Well, not so much the that quarrel with the top-down uh, as much as the um let's that that we know the answer to the problem let's just and the answer is money i think i think more 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 often than not the problem isn't um isn't to be solved by just putting money in the most conventional way onto the problem. We have to think of why the problem is the way it is. Try to understand it. Try different solutions out. Uh, do the kind of experimental work that we do in JPL. Try out strategies, and then you get to the answer. But that takes a while, and it it's, it takes a lot of care. And so it's not a. It's really not money or no money. It's money, but money armed with intelligence.
0: And you argue that. One of the most effective, perhaps the only effective way to get that intelligence is through a recent approach that's been taken, uh, sometimes called RCT, randomized control trials, uh, but in layman's terms, just uh, running experiments with two different groups to see, try to measure the impact of of a particular intervention or, or form of aid. Talk about how those uh trials or experiments are structured and uh give us the flavor of how they're executed on the ground
1: well let me let me start by making a caveat because I actually our book is very careful to not quite say what you said is that I think we are very careful to say that it's not just a matter of randomized controlled trials The matter of randomized controlled trials in a sense represent the maybe the a handy tool to answer many of these questions but the book makes the point that it is much more fundamentally about knowing exactly what 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 the problem is and understanding why what you're doing is going to solve the problem and trying out different solutions sometimes the easiest and the most effective way to try out solutions and know the answers to those questions is Uh, what's called a randomized controlled trial, but that doesn't mean that uh, it it is by any means the only or even sometimes the most important source of knowledge. Uh, Sometimes you get learned from many other facts that are staring at you, but I think the main point we were making is broader, and which is that it's very important to kind of understand that the... On the ground mechanics of particular interventions, and what what is it that makes the problem that we are trying to solve a problem? Why and why do we think that the intervention we are about to undertake is going to solve it? And that sort of there is often glib assumptions about you know the causal sequence from the the intervention to the Solution, which we are uh, liable to question and often find are, inadequ- are inadequately thought through the way policy is done. So that's sort of as just to establish exactly what uh, what we're trying to say. Coming to why do, why why so much emphasis on these randomized controlled trials? Well, what's nice about randomized controlled trials is two really nice things. First, they make it relatively easy to sort of get a reliable answer to the question, is this particular intervention working where we are claiming it's working? And the reason why it makes it easy is it solves the perennial problem of all such evaluations, which is the question of how do we know what would have happened if we hadn't done the intervention. Suppose you wanted to know the effect of providing computers in schools. You choose some schools to have computers and other schools not to have computers, or the, let's say the government chooses to to give some schools to have computers and other schools not to have computers. And, you, and then you find that the schools that got computers, actually the students learned a lot more. Now, the, your, the challenge is to figure out, does this mean that it's because of the computers that they learned more, or is it because the government gave it the computers to the schools where the children were more enthusiastic and were more interested then that's why uh, the, the the kids learn more so you, you 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 can easily conflate the reasons why the government gave the computers to those fo- those schools in the first place with the uh, effect of the computers so you you may not and that this is a fundamental problem of all attempts to evaluate this is the same problem when you look at the effect of microcredit you look at the women who got microcredit and say well look they're richer than the women who didn't get microcredit but you don't know whether but you know microcredit is something that people get on purpose uh, you know they go and find out about microcredit organization they they join the group they get microcredit and have to there's no reason to assume that the people who actually take the trouble to go get microcredit are like the people who don't take the trouble to go get microcredit. At least at the point at this point of time in their life, some of these people are kind of enthusiastic about doing something. They're going and getting microcredit. That's what a randomized control trial does. Is it kind of solves that problem of inference? It basically says, you know. This school and this other school, or let's say these hundred schools, they're all, all put into, a, uh, their names are put into a hat, and we draw out 50 of the names at random. And so that the schools that did get the computers, or the women who did get into microcredit, are chosen at random, and that gives you the advantage that you can then legitimately compare the two groups, because, you know, they were no, there's no difference between them, it's just, Decide by lottery which one is going to be which group. And therefore, you can compare them without worrying about it. That's one big reason to do RCT. There's another reason, which is less emphasized, but equally important. Suppose I wanted to know the effect of a particular computer program on learning. Now, how, how would I go about finding that out? Well, no. If, if I look in the world, I might see that being, that computer program might be being used in some schools, but it's, it's not the case that it's just that program is the only difference between those schools and other schools. Those schools might also have you know, different textbooks or different kinds of teachers. Uh, the blackboards may be different. So how, usually when you see... What, You don't see one difference between schools. You see ten differences, and so it's even if you if you just wanted to compare schools, and you know some schools have computers, you also get along with that the fact that you know those schools also have many other different things. So it's very hard to unpack the effect of one particular of a set of interventions into the constituent effects of individual interventions. And one nice thing about doing an experiment is that I can I literally choose this These fifty schools will be you know they're picked out of a hat, and I just give them this one extra thing, so I can figure out what this one extra thing does that that way I can really step by step figure out what what are the what are the and kind of the causal channels through which I can improve schooling.
0: Let me ask you a question about that though <clears throat> it's true that if you do it quote randomly. Effectively, as in a lottery, say, drawing names out of a hat, you have not biased the experiment yourself. But it does not follow that the 50 schools that get the computer program and the 50 schools that don't are the same. Uh, they can have differences. So there's still is going to be some sort of statistical, I assume, measurement of some of those factors to tease out the impact of the program on its own.
1: Well, specifically you're exactly right i mean what the what what a lottery guarantees is that these two groups are statistically identical they're drawn from the same distribution is a is a word that sometimes uh, statisticians use for this so they are identical in the same sense as you know if i toss a coin 50 times and then i toss a coin another 50 times those two groups of 50 Tosses are identical. They're going to look. There's no systematic difference between them, and as a result, we can calculate exactly how much difference between them could arise out of random chance. So it's not that we we assume that they're identical, but we can we we basically because we know how how big the how big these groups are, and we know the laws of chance. We and we can figure out uh, how how much of the difference between these two groups can come out of pure random chance, uh, which is the point you are making. And therefore, we can kind of screen that out. We can say that this difference is so big that it could not have a couple come out of random chance given the way we have drawn these things out of the <laughs> So that's you're right. There is a role for statistics. And that role is to tell us how much of this difference could have come out of random chance. That's exactly as you suggested. But we know exactly how to do that. That's the the advantage of doing our uh, cities is that we have a handle on on the nature of that difference.
0: Well, let me try to clarify that because I'm I'm a little bit confused. If if I I, I try a particular uh, computer software, let's say um, learning. A tutorial, I make it available to students in 50 schools, and there's other 50 schools that don't get the tutorial, and then I do some kind of test afterwards to try to measure its effectiveness. So during the period uh, when I decide which 50 schools that's done ran- get the tutorial, that's done randomly, but it could turn out that when I choose the 50 schools randomly, it still could be the case that the backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds of the schools that just happen to get the 50 are not literally identical to the 50 who don't get the tutorial. So I would have to control for that, say, parents' income or uh, educational experience of the students that they might have that's different across the two samples. Don't I still have to control for those factors independently of the to, to measure the independent effect of the, of the tutorial? No. Uh,
1: you, actually, you don't. Uh, uh, you, In fact, if you did that, then some purists will say that you actually vitiate the experiment. Uh, so what you really want to do... You're relying here on what is called the law of large numbers, which is that if I have, I have 50 schools drawn out of a population of 100, then it, it's probability that... A 50 drawn out of a population of 100 is systematically different from another 50. The average for the first 50 is different from the average for the second 50. Is something we can compute, and we're going to what we're going to do is say that is the observed difference bigger than the difference that could have happened out of random chance? So we're going to let the data tell us uh, the answer to that question, other than sort of. Trying to trying to fix the random differences. So it's it's the fact that so one way to think about it is imagine we had a a million um, schools, okay, and we drew half a million out of those. Now, by the law law of large numbers, basically, by the time you've a million, all random differences will have cancelled out. They cannot. Po- we know the probability exactly of how much you know the fact that these be the, the mean performance of of a group of half a million will be different from another group of half a million randomly drawn from the same population we know exactly how unlikely that is so we can basically rule say that with probability 9.99 these groups have exactly the same distribution of attributes or probably 999 i can uh, 0.999. I know exactly uh, how close these distributions are. So I know I know how to control for the random differences between these groups, rather than trying to actually actively control for it by uh, by putting in measures of those differences. That would be a different way of doing things. And well, I'm with you
0: general, on. A, I'm with you on you a million. I'm with you on a million. On a hundred or 60, it, it's. It, I understand it's still pretty high, but the bottom line is in terms of the methodology of how these effects are measured, you do not look uh, you do not try to control for any differences that may have arisen during the random, you assume that they're the same population uh, we, uh, I, I
1: think you're saying something that I am slightly disagreeing with that don't assume that they're some same population we we assume that we have randomized correctly and adjust our inference based on the fact that if I have drawn 50 out of 100, then the probability that they would... Ra- so when I report a result in any any empirical study, I say with 95% probability, the effect of this is greater than 0 or greater than 2 or greater than 5. That's, that's the claim that's always made. So when I say the 90 with 95% probability, that calculation of that 95% takes into account the fact that these things can happen by chance in any study. And so when I make a statement about, you know, these computers made these children better at math, uh, I'm making the statement, I'll make the statement, with 95% probability These the computer made these children better at math. Uh, and when I say that, uh, the, the calculation of what would constitute whether it's ninety-five percent or ninety-three percent or ninety-seven percent will take into account the sample size, the number of you know whether it's fifty schools or five million.
0: Okay. Well, let's let's. I understand. Just okay. I understand that. I'm just I'm just wondering about. The fact that you know there are these other underlying uh, variables, and it's anyway. Let, let's go on though. I'm, I'm going to move on to some of the findings because that's a lot more interesting, I think, than this methodological issue. Anyway, uh, one of the fascinating things about the book that I I really enjoyed uh, tremendously is there's this famous uh, dialogue between uh, Fitzgerald and Hemingway. I think Fitzgerald says the rich are different from us, and Hemingway says yes, they have more money. And right. w- one of the lessons of the book for me is that that really isn't the only difference, or that's not a very productive way to think about it. There's so many surprising behaviors um, and unexpected behaviors in these ex- experimental results and other findings that come from treating the poor with um, a little more care than just assuming they, they act like our models expect them to. So I thought we'd start by right. talking about about hunger – Um, some have argued that hunger traps the poor. If if you're really hungry, you can't work very effectively, you can't be productive. Then if you can't be productive, you can't make much money, so you're going to be hungry. And so the poor are trapped in this this cycle. Uh, What have we learned about how the poor react to an opportunity to get a little more food and um, how that affects their work productivity?
1: So I think it's very well established that when Poor get a little bit more money. they spend a bit of it to get more nutrition, but not a lot of it and they spend a bit of it to get more tasty food and a bit of it on other things so they're they're not they don't act as if their one goal in life is to to eat more get more calories or protein into their bodies and therefore become more productive. Very clear that that's that's not what they are trying to achieve, uh, and as a result, you look at the effect of you know, extra money on extra productivity through this nutrition channel. I think people's view is that this is relatively weak. That you know, you just by giving people a little bit more money, we won't make them so much more productive. That they could then pay that money back, it won't happen. So that's the idea. The 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 I think very optimistic idea would be that you know uh, you give these people a little bit of money, more money. They will they go eat some more chickpeas and they get really stronger and then they make more money. And when they make they make so much more money that they can pay back the money you gave them to buy chickpeas. So mostly they just don't buy chickpeas. Or whatever you know you, you get my point, it's not they don't they don't buy what are high nutrition foods necessarily chickpeas or soybeans or you know cheap high nutrition foods. It's not necessarily where they go,
0: and why not and, why not? because I think a lot of people assume well, you know if you're near starvation, uh obviously you're going to channel that income into food because that's the biggest problem you have. But as you point out in the book, you tell that great story about the Moroccan um person who uh was pretty hungry but he had a television.
1: Right. Uh, I think I think more recognize that even after they you know, even if they behave in quote unquote most rational way that we posit for themselves, they Eat the chickpeas and all that, and they're not going to get that much richer and basically, this idea that I should postpone all pleasure for a little bit more money in a few weeks is just i think psychologically unrealistic when you you need to you're under a lot of stress have a not a very pleasant life, and you know you have this choice you know. Right, you know, it's not. If somebody came and offered you an opportunity to get really rich, or even like somebody came and offered you, said, if you dig this ditch for five days, um, we'll give you a permanent government job with a, a good salary for the rest of your life. I think most of them will jump to that opportunity. That's not what they're being offered. They're being offered a little bit more, like you know. Maybe if I eat all the chickpeas, I will get 10% more. Uh, and then if I keep eating those chickpeas, I could every day earn 10% more. Is that such a great deal? I mean, is it? No. You know, you're already poor. Or do you feel like, you know, that's what you want to do? Or do you want to You got this little extra money and you could have more fun for a, a couple of days? And maybe that's, you know, that'll keep you psychologically Maybe more able to deal with the all the pressures you're under than than you know having those chickpeas um, i it's not not clear at all clear to me that if we took their their psychology seriously, we would really believe that it makes sen- always makes sense to go buy those chickpeas I think it's you know you're really under pressure you, you haven't had much fun for a long time you get a little bit of more money you've been worrying about all these problems all the time, may just want to, you know, do something uh, relaxing for a little bit. I don't see why that's any different from any of us. It's just we don't have to make these hard choices usually.
0: Yeah, well, you, you talk about how boring life can be in a small Moroccan village, and the person you interviewed said television is better than food, and... Um, you know, it's just a different way to get something out of life. Nutrition is—you uh, don't want to die. You're not—you're you know, not starving to death. It reminds me, actually, of the of the issue in America where you give a homeless person money on the street, and somebody says to you, "Oh, they're just going to waste it on alcohol." And my view is, if you're homeless on the street, sometimes a beer is really a great thing. I, <clears throat> their life is hard, and why would you deny them a little bit of of pleasure? Uh, because you think yeah, they I'm should have uh, a good meal that day, that one day, it's just one meal, like you say, it's not life changing. It's a question of whether you're going to get a little more nutrition or a little bit of a thrill, and you might go for the thrill, totally rational. Yeah,
1: I'm with you. I'm totally with you. I feel like if I were in that position, I do, I don't know why I would be expected to make these kind of these you know, morally high ground choices always.
0: But having I, said I'm that, understood. having said that, one of the interesting findings. Issues that you discuss across a number of different uh, examples that, that's so fascinating is opportunities as, say, farmers or parents where there's a technique available that could have what we would say a big bang for the buck, a huge rate of return. It might be using fertilizer for a farmer. Uh, for, a, for a mother, it might be using hydration therapy to keep a child from dying from diarrhea or at least keeping them healthy. And yet often poor people in these countries don't avail themselves of these techniques. So talk about the challenges that the poor face in terms of information and trust and how different their lives are.
1: Right. So I think the kind of uh, anticipated my answer partly. So I think that in, I think we kind of, Assume that when you tell someone that you know this is what will make your child better, you, you take oral rehydration therapy, and this will obviously make your child better. I think the uh, the our basic presumption is that that sounds to them as it sounds to us, um, and I think one core there is that they understand the process by which scientific knowledge is arrived at. I mean, they, they, we, we actually don't understand why oral rehydration therapy works um, much better than, you know, antibiotic for diarrhea. It's not maybe you do, but I don't. I, I'm not an expert on. No, I don't get Biologist.
0: it. That's okay. Carry Biologist.
1: on. Uh, no, but I think that's important. That we, The reason why we believe it is not because we believe that we know the science. At least I don't know the science. But because we know the institutions which make such recommendations work, and we know that those reco- institutions, how they come up with these recommendations, they do uh, RCTs on these things, and they find out that they... You know, this works better than that. And then they come up with a recommendation. So we know the process of knowledge generation we understand. And that's what we have a faith. It's really, it's not that we have, we understand the science. It's that we believe in a particular process of knowledge generation. And we believe that that process is more reliable than other processes. Now think of it from the point of view of poor people. I think the fundamental thing that's different is that they don't understand the process of knowledge generation And, you know, because they never had the education, too. So they don't understand that, you know, there is an FDA that determines (coughs) what works based on RCTs and all that. And, you know, uh, and uh, so for them, this is just some knowledge that somebody is claiming. And sometimes it sounds counterintuitive. You mean water and sugar is better than a medicine injected into the body? That sounds insane. I mean, medicines are good. Water and sugar is water and sugar. You know, oral rehydration therapy is just water and sugar and salt. I mean, why should that work better than a medicine? So their reaction is, no, 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 we shouldn't give them water because, you know, when when they have diarrhea, these kids are losing water all the time, which is why they die. But, you know, if we give, don't give them water, they'll stop, stop having watery bowels. So let's stop giving them water and go give them an di- antibiotic instead. And so their logic is sort of internally, it's not insane. I mean, it, it doesn't look plausible. So they're making up a theory of the world based on the things they understand. And in a sense, then they're, they're less trusting of authority than we are because we kind of understand the process that regulate authority. The FDA decides this. The WHO recommends that. We kind of know what WHO is, how it's... And for the poor, I think they've been often told... Lies by the state, and you know, you know, state has promised them things, and then which haven't happened. So they're less, they're more skeptical of institutions generally. And so, if you go and tell them something counterintuitive, like you know, don't give them the medicine, just give them this, uh, this you know, bottle of water with sugar and salt in it. That sounds like, oh, you know, that's one of those stories that these these authorities make up, but God knows why they make those stories up, or maybe they even think there's some evil plan there, we should just go with our instinct, which is to go, you know, medicine is better than water and sugar. And, you know, if you state it like that, doesn't it sound plausible to you?
0: Well, yeah, not only that, I think, of course, a lot of times things that we rely on that are so-called scientific turn out not to be as scientific as we had thought. So it, <laughs> skepticism is a good idea. The problem is, is that we on the outside often see things that we know have been tested so consistently found to be effective that it, that it's quote a no brainer, and yet um, children are dying because they're not these techniques are not trusted. And part of that, you know, is an education problem. Part of it is a worldview problem. Part of it is, as you say, an unfamiliarity with the scientific method, um, and some of it is a distrust, not just of the government. But of strangers, people coming from the outside, saying, "I know what's best for you," and it, it's good to be skeptical of those kind of folks.
1: <laughs> I, I agree with you. So, so it, it, I think it makes perfect sense to react in this way. It's tragic, but it's not not stupid. I mean, you know,
0: it is it is based on some reasonable thinking. Let's let's turn to the role of education, which you know is often thought to be the single biggest barrier to to development. Um, and as many have pointed out, there've been some dreadful, um, results and attempts to improve education. And this isn't, of course, only true in developing countries. It's true in developed countries as well. Uh, I always find it ironic that people look at the ineffectiveness of government spending on education and via aid and forget how ineffective, uh, American spending on education often is in our own country. But let's, let's talk about it with the big picture first, you contrast what you call the supply wallas and the demand wallas, where walla is a term that means provider of. Uh, Some people suggest we need to build more schools, create more teachers in these poor countries. Others say that unless there's a reason uh, to go to school, a reason to invest, uh, all the schools and teachers in the world won't matter. Uh, Talk about why what's true and false about those views and, and what we do know about that can make uh, students better educated in poor countries.
1: We know that
0: demand matters
1: when when it's clear that there are benefits from education, people more more effort into it. that's clear. Also, that supply matters when when you build schools um, so that people have schools to go to, they learn more. Not true that you can just you know, tell people that, you know, you should want education and then magically schools will appear. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, clear evidence of school construction and more generally, you know, making school more available does affect education level. Um, having said that, what I think the reason why that debate is a bit besides the point is that, I think you look at look at where the big failures are. They seem to be really in places where people are, you know, putting effort into sending their children to school, and schools are there. And it's still true that people are not learning. That's the most striking fact. Most striking fact is is the lack of learning in settings where. doesn't seem to be any obvious lack of demand, or any ab- obvious lack of, you know, supply in the sense of there being a school, there being a teacher in the school, etc. So it's that, this, the, I think the what makes it really interesting is that fact that it's it's uh, you see a lot of private schools in developing countries. There, interestingly, there are a lot of private schools that the poor send their children to. Oh, a dollar, uh, uh, dollar a month kind of private school, or two dollars a month kind of private schools. They, they 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 are like all over the developing world. There are these very cut rate of private schools. These parents are clearly very poor, and for them, you know, two dollars a month is a lot of money. And so you know, uh, so they are putting effort into into this. Uh, they are you know they're making sure that this their kids are getting something that they they uh, value. And so it's not because of... Yet, even in those schools, you see slightly better results, somewhat better results than maybe the government schools, but still very, very disappointing results even in those cases. And uh, the average kid there isn't, isn't studying at grade level either. The problem seems to be attitude of the entire education system, that means the teachers, the parents, and even the children toward what the goal of education is. They seem to be all stuck on the idea that the goal of education is to get through some very difficult exam and get a job based on having got through that. And that's something that only a few people can do It what we call a winner-take-all education. So it's like education is some long, odd gamble, which everybody should try, but it's not going to work out for everybody, or even for most people. Whereas, in fact, we know that most people get something out of being educated. They, even if you can read a little bit, you understand a bit better what the instructions are. From the doctor, you do a little bit better in bringing up your children. So the benefits seem to be much more, much more widespread than than people assume. The teachers seem to assume that, well, you know, most of these kids, they're hopeless, there's no point trying to teach them anything, they just teach to the top of the class. And the parents actually don't complain, because they also believe that the goal of the whole system is to train somebody, you know, to find out whether your child is one of those few lucky geniuses who is going to go on to, you you know, get a good education and a fine job. And if he isn't, What's the point of educating him? So everybody is sort of much more pessimistic about the education outcomes of the median person than they should be. I think So based on that, the whole education system is therefore, like the, the curricula are way too hard. The teachers don't pay any, any attention to any of the children who are falling behind in class. Uh, the parents don't complain when the children fall behind in class. Either they kind of assume that, you know, there's some justice, rough justice there, which is that, you know, either either your kid is really smart and then, then education is worthwhile. Otherwise, there's no point in speaking in any case. So everybody kind of colludes with that. And the kids kind of very quickly lose hope. They kind of figure out that they're not one of these um, anointed people, and therefore they then also start giving up. And you see this, you know, this children sitting through class after class where they understand nothing. They are in fourth grade. They can't really read. So they understand nothing of what's going on. They're teaching history. They have no idea what's going on. But they sit calmly through school and then start kind of dropping out of school. So they vote with their feet. By When they're four in fourth grade, they may be too young, so they keep coming. But by the time they go sixth or seventh grade, they know that the school thing is not working out for them. They just drop out. And you see this pattern over and over again of, of... Unreasonable expectations that then are effectively used to clean out most of the
0: people in the education. You chronicle, as many others have, a huge problem with absenteeism by teachers, um, which is independent of this attitude problem you mentioned. I'd like you to talk about the magnitude of the absenteeism problem What might be done about that and then what might be done about this attitude issue of that the whole thing is a lottery for the elite? Um, So,
1: I think the magnitude is shocking sometimes. Um, Roughly, I think in many countries the actual teaching time that, that get from teachers is about half of what they should be delivering. So, because you know quarter of the time they don't show up, and even when they show up they they don't teach so if you take those together, there's about a, maybe a fifty percent of their their sort of their regulation teaching time they don't actually teach so you that's and i think that's a that's a huge problem it's a problem that i think i mean in some ways we know uh That's a pro- one of the problems. We know what what can be done about it. Um, one of some of my colleagues from a Poverty Action Lab, including Esther Duflo, my co-author on this book, um, did this experiment w- in, with an NGO where the NGOs actually had teachers who would go up only sixty percent of the time. And to start with, so the NGO was concerned. What they did was they got gave. This was in the old days before I think you know the the information technology really hit the hit, uh, cameras. So this was, this was uh, in the uh, days when you still had film cameras, but uh, there were cheap film cameras which were given to every teacher. And the teacher was told, at the beginning of the day, have a child take a picture of you with uh, at least, I think, eight other children when eight being kind of minimum class size, and at the end of the day, do that again, and the the camera had a date and time. The arrangement with the teachers was that they would be paid a fixed amount plus a, a, a pro-rata amount based on the number of days they attended, and this, this date and time uh, stamped photographs were just to give proof that they had attended. So they, they, this was proof based on on having the proof they would get paid more every, for every day they attended. When you look at what that did, it halved absence rates, and it and the teach, children learn much more. So it, you see a very causal channel there. Of uh, how to improve education, and it's, it is something that is straightforward to do if there's political will to do it. I don't think this is this is a difficult problem as such. I and the, these days with you know fingerprint recognition and you know you could really ma- and you could automatize this system with with a l- l- very little uh, cost and make it just much more effective than this. You know, where you, the system where you actually look at the pictures and stuff. So, this, this was a, this was a system that was designed for, you know, 10 years ago, the world 10 years ago. Now it's, you could do it much more effectively using uh, information technology. So, that's the easy part. Then there's the hard part, which is how do you get teachers to have different attitudes? And that's, that, that's not, not easy, but it's actually not, it's it's not actually as hard as it seems. I mean, one thing that's kind of heartening is that when the same teachers, the teachers who teach in government schools and children who ignore most of the children and sort of act in this elitist way, when you when you train them to teach in a summer school for the lagging children, these lagging children actually learn a hell of a lot from them. The teachers are actually very effective in teaching the lagging children. And it's striking that the same person who essentially ignores the lagging children when he teaches in in the kind of regular school seems to be very effective at teaching those children. When in summer school, that's his job. He doesn't see it. in the summer school is explicitly told your your job is to help the lagging children. And then he does it. So it's a matter of the education system sending the signal that this is what we want. I don't think it's a matter of it's not it's not a huge battle to be fought. We need to in 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 terms of getting you know teachers are not i don't think they are you know some of them are obviously completely have checked out but a lot of them are willing to try to teach it's just it's difficult for them to teach uh in this uh teach these these lagging children in the regular school system because the whole system expects them not to do that
0: yeah i think it's an interesting challenge um and you know, it's a challenge in America, too, where there is a surprising lack of oversight, I think in the um, you know in the public school system. One of the things that reminds me of that I think was so interesting in the book is how many poor people in poor countries aspire toward government jobs um, and often as teachers. and this is a little bit disheartening, although when you think about the opportunity for absenteeism and drinking tea, which is one of the things you mentioned, and these teachers often do, even when they're in school, they're not teaching, they're hanging out drinking tea, uh, you can understand why a government job is so attractive. Um, and often, of course, the private sector in these countries is not very well organized uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, governance being one of them, it's hard for the private sector to generate employment through legitimate channels. Uh, talk a little bit about what hope we have in that area.
1: So, I think that in general, there is a. Uh, I think the problems of the um, private sector in uh, development, in, in developing countries, is interesting because you see, A, huge numbers of private sector firms. It's usual fact that's striking when you go to developing countries. How many little stores, stalls, store hustling, uh, you know, stuff on the street. You see how much private enterprise there is in countries. And then somehow it's also true that when you look at the productivity of the private sector, it seems very low. And I think I think that that sort of poses an interesting challenge. Why are all these people in the private sector? The private sector is not very productive. Well, turns out, uh, not surprisingly, the reason is precisely that the private sector is not so productive. So you can't because there are no good jobs around. People substitute by setting up their own little farms and uh, you know trying to eke out a living by just selling whatever they can sell or doing some service that they that somebody may want to buy. So you end up with a huge number of inefficient firms. Or, I mean, clearly what all these countries need to go towards, setting where they have bigger, uh, more productive, uh, and less numerous firms. How that will happen, that's the big challenge of, I think, going to face. Uh, And I think there I feel that, You know, we've been told that this is going to happen from microcredit. In fact, microcredit is the wrong instrument to generate, like, large firms. First, the loan amounts are small. And second, um, loans have this structure where, you know, you're required to pay them, pay pay back your loan starting, you know, week after you got the loan. You have to pay back, like, a, a chunk of money every week. So you're really stuck. No, you have to let you get your loan generate an income immediately. That doesn't make for like being really an entrepreneur in the animal adventurous sense of the word. You just find the easiest, simplest, more reliable thing you can do, which you can start tomorrow and will generate uh, some money immediately, and you do that. That that sort of means that you're never really going to, or very unlikely that you're going to become a really big and productive entrepreneur.
0: Suppose you're listening to this podcast, you care about the poor, you'd like to do something. What, what can someone do as an individual uh, to help people around the world? Uh, you know, One answer would be to lobby the government to give more foreign aid. Uh, that's not generally what people think of first, and it tends not to be effective. Uh, when it's just, as you said earlier, just spent. What can an individual do um, to help? I think the I think there's a
1: lot they can do. I I do think that um, there are many many good organizations out there doing good work. We have some we list some on on our website. And uh, but I think the more general lesson that we would like people to embrace is a not to lose hope that there is actually lots of good stuff happening, lots of progress taking place all over the world. It's not that every effort fails. There are lots of creative solutions, some of them even in government. Some, a lot of them do, do um, you know, contribute to welfare. But I think the important thing is to have a critical judgment, to ask the question, not give naively, and not believe in sort of uh, you know heartwarming anecdotes uh, the teeth of all evidence. I think, I think people need to be more active consumers. They need to think, why this, would this work? Why would I believe it? What's the evidence? What's the story they're telling? Why, why do I believe that story? Is there any evidence for it?
0: My guest today has been Abhisheed Banerjee. Abhisheed, thanks for being part of EconTalk.